You can open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And tonight we are beginning our series on Elijah. We're going to be talking about throughout this series having the faith to stand. But you might be thinking, I don't see Elijah in chapter 12 of 1 Kings. What are you doing? Elijah doesn't appear until chapter 17, but you cannot appreciate the world that Elijah is dropped into by God until you see the world of of Israel and the things that have happened since the, the, the separation of the nation between north and south that to just start in chapter 17 would put uh, Elijah in a bubble. And you need to see what is leading up to Elijah's arrival. What is going on in Israel and Judah? What are the conditions of these two nations? What are the kings like? And that is what God wants us to see in these chapters that leads up to the arrival of Elijah. As an aside, that's also very important because we know there are prophecies concerning an Elijah to come that you will see in the New Testament and the events that lead up to Elijah's arrival in the Old Testament is instructive for the events that lead up to the arrival of Elijah in the New Testament. And so missing the connections of what brings Elijah onto the scene and what the atmosphere is and the culture and the religious worship and the teaching is very important to understanding what Elijah is up against and what he's ultimately called to do. And so we're going to have a couple of lessons here leading up to uh, seeing Elijah and seeing the things that are happening there. Now, as we are in First Kings chapter 12, our section is going to be verses 25 through 33, a little bit of a reminder of what has happened up to this this point is we have had the the nation divide. Israel is now the northern nation of ten tribes under the reign of Jeroboam. The southern nation of Judah, also including Benjamin, is under King Rehoboam. Now remember, Rehoboam has made some foolish decisions. He's not walking in the ways of God. And God had made a promise to Jeroboam, a very important promise and covenant was given to him that if Jeroboam will walk in the ways of the Lord, that God would establish his rule, create a dynasty through Jeroboam. And now God is essentially going to give him the opportunity to have almost all the same promises that were then indicated to Solomon. And so as this section begins, we're going to be wondering, well, here is Jeroboam's chance. After Solomon's failure and the division of the kingdom, which do not forget, four times God says God did that. That division of north and south and the two tribes, that was God's doing. God has a plan here in these events that that are unfolding. And now Jeroboam, the promises can be through you. What will he do? 1 Kings 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, 
then the heart of this people will turn to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. I want you to notice that this whole sequence begins with a concern of simply fear. And what we have Jeroboam fearing is that you will remember that these annual feasts that God had established were to occur in the place where God had designated. That designation was ultimately then laid at Jerusalem, the city of David. And so as the various feasts would come around, like Passover and the the Feast of, of Tabernacles and the like, all of the people were supposed to go to Jerusalem. Jeroboam knows that. And so Jeroboam's fear is that when the next feast day comes, his people who are in Israel are going to go down to Judah and they're going to worship and they're going to go, oh, we remember Rehoboam. He was such a lovely king and we would like him to be our ruler. And so they will assassinate then Jeroboam and reunify the nation under Rehoboam. And so what you have Jeroboam doing is a deep fear and deep concern that when they go to Jerusalem, they're ultimately not going to come back. And if they do, they're not going to want Jeroboam to be their king any longer. And I want you to think about that concern for a minute. Because ultimately this fear represents a complete lack of trust in the promises of God. Because God had specifically said back in chapter 11, If you will walk in my ways, I will establish your kingdom. I'll establish your rule. I will establish your dynasty. You will have descendants on the throne. God was making that promise to him. And what we are seeing with Jeroboam is he doesn't trust that promise. He's afraid that's not going to happen. He believes he's taking matters into his own hands. And so notice what he's going to decide to do and think about what you would do. How are you going to keep the people from going to Jerusalem to worship God? Verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel. And the other he put in Dan, and this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. I want you to notice what he does. Is he says, now how am I going to get people to not go all the way to Jerusalem? And well, to notice what he does is he argues for convenience. I love how the various translations render this and trying to give us a picture of what Jeroboam offers. The ESV, as I've read, says, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. The CSB reads, it is too difficult to go to Jerusalem. The net reads, it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. And the New American Standard just says, it's just too much. It's just too much for you to have to go and do that worship. Notice the argument is one of convenience. Why go all the way to Jerusalem? Why have to do that? That You've been doing that for too long. 
That's too hard. That's too much trouble. That's too difficult. And what he does then is he sets up calves then at Dan and Bethel. These are two locations that would have made it so that nobody would have had to leave Israel. You have one in Dan who is up at the top of the, of the country border area and Bethel down near the southern border of Israel so that you would be passing by one of them if you were going to go to Jerusalem. And so Jeroboam's point is simply this. Ah, you know, Jerusalem, that's that's too difficult for you. Why do that? Come, Come and worship God at Dan or at Bethel. In fact, the way that he promotes this is fascinating. Did you notice what he said there in verse 28? After saying you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough, he says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, does all that sound a little familiar to you? You might remember that that is exactly what Aaron said when he fashioned his gold calf. And when they said, we don't know where Moses is. And so what are we going to do? He fashions the gold calf and says, behold, your gods who have led you out of the land of Egypt. What Jeroboam is doing is connecting it back to that point. And what I want you to hear that Jeroboam is not saying, hey, everybody, let's reject the living God and worship these calves. That's not at all what he's doing. What he's doing is saying we can worship God like this. Here is your God who who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We'll we'll follow it just like this. We'll go to these locations and you worship these calves in Dan and Bethel. And that'll be acceptable worship. And and it just rings just like Aaron. Remember Aaron, you know, you want to read. Somebody needs to come in and go, that didn't work out well for Aaron. Those aren't good words to say that. Aaron and everybody ends up drinking that calf after Moses gets done with them, after he melts it back down and mixes it with water. This is not a good thing to say, behold your gods. But I think it's important to recognize that he's not putting in alternate gods and saying, leave the Lord and let's worship calves. No. What he's saying is, Let's worship the Lord through the calves. These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Obviously, they looked at these gold calves and are not stupid and went, oh, yes, we know that cows led us out of Egypt. He's making the connection. You can worship God like this. Just worship him like this. And what I hope that you would note is troubling in this when you notice verse 30 is verse 30 does not say, and all the people of Israel rose up and rebelled and said, how dare you do something like this? We know that God said, only worship in Jerusalem. And no, it's not too much trouble for us to do this. We will go there three times a year, just as God said. And so Jeroboam, you can keep your calves. We don't want them. That's not what verse 30 says. Verse 30 says, they went to Dan and Bethel. (laughs) They did exactly as Jeroboam said. He put his finger on something that caused a ripple within the people. And that is of convenience. Let's just make this easier. Don't go to Jerusalem. That's too much trouble. Don't go there. You've been doing that long enough. Let me simplify your worship. 
And I want you to worship here at these locations instead. I want you to worship there. And for the nation not to rise up at this moment is truly one that is staggering because this is going to forever alter Israel and their worship. This is a defining moment for Israel. A defining moment for the reign of Jeroboam and a defining moment for the future of Israel as this comes about. And I think it is interesting for this very short little paragraph that as the question is asked, the two nations are divided. How will Rehoboam do? And how will Jeroboam do? That the focal point that God puts on Jeroboam is he offered worship to be simply a convenience to the people. And the people accepted. And it is a reminder to us that that's not what worship is supposed to be about. That that's not how worship is to be defined. That that's not how we are to look through the lens of serving God and deciding, well, what is the easiest thing for me to do? That's what Jeroboam is reaching into. That's what he is assuming the people are going to do. That they're not going to say, no, no, we want to go ahead and worship just as God said. No, instead that they are going to seize on this. And they absolutely do. Uh, I, I, there's not a lot of things that I get troubled by. <laughs> but I think there is certainly a concern of where we stand right here at this day and time. That the door has been opened for this digital, virtual worship. And that we don't need to be together. We'll all just stay at home. And that'll be easier. And that'll be more convenient. And that'll be all right. And I want to remind us that that is not what God has called us to do. And I did a whole series on it, so I'm not going to go tracking off on on this at all at this moment. But I do want to remind us that when we were looking back at Acts 2, and we talked about how we see Christians physically coming together to devote themselves to prayer, to fellowship, to the apostles' teaching, and to taking the Lord's Supper together. That there is never a single picture of Christians worshiping in isolation. They are always coming together. And we cannot lose sight of that. And I think the thing that I want to get at is particularly this, is that if we choose to make decisions, spiritual decisions or worship decisions, strictly based on convenience, we will drift away. If we start making the decision based on, well, what is just comfortable for me? What is easiest for me? We are going to be walking the wrong direction. And that's what Jeroboam is expecting. Here's how I can get them. I'm just going to say, let's make this easy. And I want us just to think about that for a moment. Because for that to work must have assumed that the people in Israel viewed going to worship in Jerusalem as a pain. His argument is, you've had to do that for far too long. 
What a pain. Let me solve your pain. Which means that seizing on something, that that's exactly how they looked at their worship. And I tell you, this is a, a watershed moment for Israel. Do you remember when you get to the book of Malachi, what the people were saying? Has the heart changed? In the book of Malachi, final prophet, oh, what a weariness that we have to go and worship the Lord. It's the same thing that happens. There is a huge temptation and a huge tendency on our part to lean into worship in such a way to say, oh, what a weariness. And we would have hoped for the people in verse 30 to rise up here and say, no, we want to worship God. We want to worship Him the way that He says. Worship is not an inconvenience. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. It's not a weariness. It's not a pain. It's something that we want to do. That's what you're hoping for the people to rise up and say. And unfortunately, that's not at all what happens. I would make this point. If we find worship to be wearisome or obligatory, something that we have to do, an inconvenience to our schedules, what do we think we're going to be doing in heaven exactly? If it's so terrible now... I submit to you, you won't be in heaven because that's what it's all about. At least everything we ever read about what the heavenly realms look like is everybody's worshiping God. That's all they do. I know we've turned it into harps and tennis and floating on clouds. It's worship. And that's the essence of what's happened right here. The people are not saying we love the Lord and we want to worship him and we want to go to Jerusalem and we want to follow through in that. And yeah, those who lived in the in the, the, the northern nation, that would be trouble. That would be a difficulty. And they don't say, but we don't care. We want to worship. That's what we should hope for out of the people. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. It is so important that we make sure that convenience does not appeal to our fleshly desires because that's not the goal of worship. And I want to challenge our thinking in a few ways. Number one, I want to challenge us by considering that it is selfish on our part to evaluate worship on how convenient it is for me. And here's why. You're not thinking about what that means for somebody else. Your calculation is only you. Here's what would work for me. Well, does that work for everybody else? Would that be for their good? Would that be for their benefit? Would that be for their spiritual upbuilding and for their help? So just simply what I want. Uh, I'll use an illustration of this. Time has become numb to me now, but... If you if you are one of the long timers here, it was probably like 15, 16 years ago. There was a, a few people who brought up maybe we could uh, move our Sunday night worship time up to like four o'clock. It would be easier, and so we put it before everybody. Let's put it at four p.m. and what did everybody think? And there was only like a handful of people who said no, that wouldn't work for us. We wouldn't be able to come if we did that. So what should we do? Well, we've got 95%, so too bad for the few and deal with it. 
No. (laughs) We don't look at sheep and go, well, too bad for those sheep. At least we've got the majority. We need to be concerned about how does that impact everybody? What will that do for them? And I am dismayed and saddened at how often there is not a concern for, well, what will the impact be on the other sheep? There's only a thought process of, well, what will it mean for me? How is it easy for me? How is it better for me and not others? And what will it do for them? It is important that we also remember that, yes, number one, worship is God-directed, but that's not its only purpose. There is a reason why you have scriptures that say, we sing not because, well, God wants to hear that and he really likes our voices on Sunday. I sure hope he does. But you remember what the text says? We're singing these songs and hymns to one another, teaching one another. We are encouraging one another in this. There is an aspect of our worship that, yes, number one is God directed, but number two, it is each other directed. This is also for us to encourage one another as the day approaches so that we will not come up short. And so the prayers that we give and the words that we say and the songs that we sing, it is primarily for God. But yes, God wants that to be used for us and to do those things together. You think about those commands of what is given of our our gathering. It is intensely talking about how these things need to build each other up. That they're used in a way to encourage one another and that we would look at it in that way. I, I don't know if this thinking comes perhaps from there's the long time point of view. Well, there's five acts of worship and if we can knock out all five, then, you know, God is pleased. But worship is not just merely, okay, we prayed and we sang some songs and we gave and we took the Lord's Supper and we heard a lesson. What a terrible way to look at worship is just, okay, let's make sure we get the check marks done. We're supposed to be engaging each other in this. What we are doing is so much a a, a joining together, a unity together. And it's important that we see how much we need each other when it comes to worship. And right now we are being presented with the challenge that, hey, just make it easy. Just just relax and stay home. And I want us to see that's not what God's view was of what worship was supposed to look like. In fact, I want you to notice what this ends up leading to after verse 30 says this became a sin for Israel. But look where this goes. Verse 31. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the peoples who were not of the of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. I want you to notice that with 
Israel accepting going to Dan and Bethel, it just emboldened him to make all the more changes. Did you hear the litany of things that he does? It's summarized well in verse 33 in the middle where it just says that these were the things that he had devised from his own heart. He just, you know, if we're going to make things up, let's make things up. If you're going to cross one, let's just keep going. Where do you stop? And that's ultimately what he does. In fact, the wording here is is really great. It is, it is sometimes difficult in translation to capture words. I'm reminded of that as I'm teaching Grace Spanish right right now, her high school Spanish. I have great benefit of that because I had three years of it in high school and lived in San Diego. So there you go, big bonus. And so I'm reminded of things definitely get lost in translation when you're trying to say things. And there's a little bit of that here because there is a, a Hebrew word, asaw, that can be translated a number of ways. It has a wide semantic range, but one of them is made. And you may notice in your text, you will notice from verse 31 to verse 33, the word made. I'm going to use the same Hebrew word with the same English word made and listen to the emphasis that is being made. Seven times the same word, starting in verse 31. Jeroboam also made temples on high places and made priests from among the people who were not Levites. Verse 32, he made a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. He did this in Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made. He placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. Verse 33, he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel in the month that he had devised from his own heart. He made a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Seven times the same Hebrew word. I just want you to see everything Jeroboam made. He makes priests. He makes temples. He makes high places. He makes sacrifices. He just completely overhauls the whole thing because the people are on board. He just totally ignores what God wanted and made his own worship. When the people did not respond and say, no, we must go to Jerusalem. Then he changes the dates, changes the priesthood. You catch, he makes priests that are not even out of Levi. I mean, that's a double whammy. Remember, you know, not any old Levite could be a priest. And then he just says, let's forget the tribe altogether. We'll just have anybody be a priest. The point is that Jeroboam ignored what God had said to do and instead devised what he wanted from his own heart. We must remember that worship is not about what we can come up with. That's not what worship is about. Worship is not us saying, all right, let's see if we can figure out and devise. Worship is obviously about doing exactly what God has called us to do. What does he desire of his people? That's the essence of worship is what does he want? We're trying to give that to him. We're trying to present that as that sweet smelling aroma of an offering before God. So let's bring in some application. Let's talk about a couple of things before we close. First of all, I want you to notice short paragraph. How, how did it all begin? He didn't trust God. He just didn't trust God. He was afraid. 
He was afraid of how all the people were going to end up in Jerusalem and how they would reject his kingship. Even though God said, I'm with you. Obey me. It will go great for you. He didn't believe. He didn't trust. And unfortunately now that decision will shape and impact Israel for all the future generations. When you read the northern nations and you study through either uh, through the kings, first or second kings, what you will see is worship is never righteous and never holy again. It never comes back from this decision that Jeroboam makes that the people allow to have happen. And I think it is so important that we make sure to consider that we do not make worship merely about our convenience or how it affects us. Our purpose must be for the worship of God, for the building up of one another. And allow me to add one more. This is one very important way that we reach the community. It's a very important tool that we have to reach the lost, to know who's seeking, who's interested, who's looking for spiritual answers, who's seeking for something more than just what's happening in this world, but that there could be more with God. This is one of the best ways we reach out to them and they are able to respond. Without this, you're left to navigate on your own. Well, I wonder who would be interested. And we are called to do that as individuals. But this is such an important facet that we have of coming together to worship so that we can reach out as well to lost souls. As we think about this, one of the things when we consider that worship is for the praise of God, for the encouragement of one another, and as well as a critical means for reaching the lost, then we never should just simply ask when it comes to worship, can we do it? Jeroboam, there's a lot of things he could do right here. He did them, actually. He made all kinds of things. Seven things he decided he would do after he put the gold calves there. But that shouldn't be the question. The question should always be, should we do this? Is this what God wants? Not just can we do it. We've got a blank slate of what can be done. What does God want? Should we be doing this? And friends, our worship should simply never pass through the filters of comfort and convenience. That just shouldn't be what the litmus test is. What's easy? What's the easiest thing? For me to do. I hope you think about what a terrible. What a terrible statement that is to God. If we take the sacrifice of Jesus. And all that he's done for us. And our responses. So what's the easiest least amount I can do back. Give me something as easy as I can do God. No I know that you you know. Created all things, made me, died on a cross so I could spend eternity with you. But can we make this as easy as possible? That in and of itself speaks so poorly to an attitude toward God. That what we are communicating to him is ultimately we don't want to do this. And friends, worship is supposed to be the heart's desire. It's supposed to be our heart's desire. 
If it's not, it's not worship. This is why the scriptures talk about the need to engage the heart, making melody in the heart to the Lord, that the heart is engaged. It comes from our heart's desire. It is responsive to what God has done for us. Let me end by just saying two things. Number one, the point of this lesson is not, is not, is not, and is not. That means we need to always do things the way we always have. We haven't done things here the way we always have. If you've been here long enough, we've done different things with worship here. That's not the point. That's not what God's saying here. The point of what God is pointing out to us is convenience cannot be the basis for what we do. That's how Jeroboam got him. That's what Jeroboam did. He says, let me make it, make, get you on convenience. That can't be the decision. The decision has to be about, is this what God wants? Is this good for us in edifying us and building us up so that we are stronger and growing in faith? Is this good for reaching the community and showing our light to the world around us? Those have to be the things that have to run through our, the, the, the questions of what we should do, not... What is the easiest thing for us to do? And I would just end with this. If our filter is convenience, then ultimately we are not worshiping God. We are worshiping our personal God of convenience and comfort. That's our primary. We've established that idol. That's what matters most. And we can't let that be the basis for our decisions. We can't let that be the basis for worship. It cannot be the basis for your own personal walk with God. Jesus had a really interesting way of making sure that we would not serve him merely for convenience or out of comfort. You think about how many times somebody would come up to Jesus with a question, And what is a typical response that Jesus would give? But uh, you need to sacrifice, take up your cross and follow me. (laughs) His answers were never, you just find that easy path. You just do what's comfortable for you. You do what's good for you and it'll be okay. It was always, you want to follow me? then understand what you're signing up for. We're leaving comfort and convenience behind. We are seeking the Lord our God who has loved us and saved us. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a challenge, Lord, that that I pray that you would search and convict our hearts because we live in a culture right now, Lord, that just impresses upon us to do what's comfortable and easy and right in our own eyes. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not make decisions by the flesh not to just simply look for the easiest way. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a, a deep, deep love for you, a, a heart that does not care about the cost, and does not care about the amount of sacrifice or difficulty to love you and serve you and worship you. God, please forgive us for the times when we have made decisions out of our own personal comforts and not decisions based on what you want for us to do. Decisions that are not from your will. Forgive us for those decisions. Lord, help us to be so much stronger, not only in our conviction, but in our willingness to put aside the personal comforts that we cherish so much. Lord, you, you have made our worship easy. We, we live in a comfortable country. We sit here in a comfortable building. We drive comfortable cars. We have every comfort and blessing that you have given to us. Lord, thank you for those. But God, please stir us up if we've allowed that comfort to get in our way of worshiping and serving you. Lord, as our, our, our prayer tonight, that we would seek you with all of our heart. And Lord, may our hearts never see our worship, our spiritual service, or any act of righteousness that we do as an obligation or a requirement. May it always be done from love. And convict us, Lord, when it isn't. Forgive us, Lord, and give us in the days ahead a stronger zeal to serve you more fully than we have in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you'll think about your own worship and service to God and that you'll consider your heart and how you approach God. And if he is your heart's desire, do you love him no matter what? Do you love him no matter the cost? And are you willing to follow him no matter what he says? We'd love to help you in any way tonight to turn away from your sins be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and to follow him faithfully worshiping and serving because of what he's done for you. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand?